I just have to reiterate, that was a fun way to start this morning. Thank you, Travis and Nikia, for that. As a student at the University of Denver when I was in college years and years ago, I paid my own way through school, which I'm sure many of you can relate to. I had some grants and scholarships, and I, you know, babysat for some extra side money and took out a loan for a, a couple of years, and I did some work study, basically just scraped together whatever I could. There were times where I had about 37 cents in the bank, but, uh, you know, I managed to muddle through. I especially worked during the summers to make money to pay for college, and one summer, I held down three jobs, one of which was working at a residential home for young teens that had physical and uh, mental disabilities. I was able to work there a few nights a week, which allowed me to uh, have a place to stay since I was couch surfing that summer. I had never done anything like that in my life, never worked with people with disabilities, but it was listed on the summer jobs board at the university, and so I thought, well, that'll give me a chance to find some place to sleep when I didn't want to ask all my friends for the help. There were eight residents who lived in that home, and I, I remember each of them, maybe not by name still, but they had a pretty significant impact on me. I remember one uh, teenage girl named Julie, Julie looked like every other 17-year-old you might imagine. She was tall and curvy, pretty. She had jet black hair. I remember that. But every once in a while, Julie would have a little meltdown, like a four-year-old. And it happened frequently throughout the days. There was another young man there named Scott. He had Down syndrome. He was pretty sweet on Julie. And I remember one young man named Eric. He was the only one that was in a wheelchair at the home, also the only one who wasn't nonverbal. He could communicate a little bit. The rest of the residents there were pretty much nonverbal. Eric was also the only one whose parents never came to visit. As with any child placed in foster care or a person sent to live in a psychiatric hospital or a detention center or a prison, a nursing home. People who live in these places often have a sense of feeling unwanted or unloved, undesirable, undeserving, unlucky, just un. And yet, even in these places, and especially in these places, I would argue, there's a beautiful opportunity for community to take shape. Now, I admit that that was hard for me at first, living in this place as I did for just a few overnight shifts, but I remember the wiser and older full-time caregivers helping me to see past what initially meets the eye, past the pain, and the brokenness and the grief that some of these people were experiencing, beyond their physical limitations and their disabilities, beyond bodies, frankly. They helped me to see all the way in to the beauty beneath the pain. Because when we can do that, when we can truly see someone else on the inside, then we discover that we all actually 
belong. The L'Arche communities are a global network of homes for people with disabilities, not unlike the one that I worked at in college. Although the real difference between the L'Arche communities and the one I worked with, at and, and other communities that have a similar uh, focus is that L'Arche is designed for people with intellectual and physical disabilities and their caregivers to do life together. It's intended that they live amongst each other, working together, spending time together in community day in and day out. So the founder of L'Arche Communities writes that when you truly enter into a community, the warmth of that community is exhilarating. And it allows people to sort of take off their masks and let, let down their guard a little bit and be seen for who they really are. Not that armored up version that we offer the world. And we armor up all the time. It's not easy to let go of that. We armor up even in church, just like we do in the gym or the office or, or with our, our buddies or our social circles. Certainly on social media, think of the ways that we present ourselves on social media. It's so different sometimes than what's really going on in our lives that we don't necessarily want people to see. So community begins and ends with us being so certain about our spiritual connection with other people, other humans, that we can let down that guard and say, you know what, this is me. And when that happens, we see someone for who they are, not for what they do or what they can't do. We don't see them for what their armored exterior is or what masks they might be wearing. And when we love them in that place, that is healing. That is transformative. I've been asked what some of my biggest lessons have been on this cancer journey that I've had the last six months. And as I wrote in my blog just a few days ago, there are way too many to name in one short conversation. Way too many lessons. But one that's at the top of the list, interestingly enough, is self-love. You all have helped me to see myself differently because I've really been seen by you. When I was at my lowest point, and I mean my whole family, at our lowest point, I was literally showered with love. Now I told you we were gonna talk about the decorations here in the chapel this morning. And I want you to take a good look at this because I had a few elves helping me to decorate on Friday afternoons. I saved each and every one of the cards that people sent me. And what you see here is a visual representation of my being showered with love in this one seemingly small way, right? But up here are 400 plus cards. Oh, and I also have a stack here because they didn't fit, so I have even more here. I think these cards came over the period of about maybe three to four months. There are over 400 cards, so that's about four cards per day on average that I received from this community, 
from people I hadn't seen in decades sometimes, from friends, from family. I had one person, by the way, who sent me, hmm, I'm going to say three to four postcards a week, almost daily sometimes. One person sent all of these, all of this beautiful decoration that you see up here on the pulpit on both sides of it. There have to be at least 50 of them. They still come, by the way. I don't know who you are. I've tried to decipher your handwriting. <laughs> I've compared it to other things I've received in the mail. I even, I even compared it to something that someone sent here to the chapel, and I was like, maybe it's this person. But whoever you are, what a ministry, what a gift to give to somebody. Every single day, you guys, I have gotten something from you. What a gift. Not only did it sustain and encourage me, but it changed me. You all really made me want to be better. I realized the power of just a small reach out to somebody. I said people I hadn't seen in decades. I mean, 10, 20, 30 years, old classmates sending me cards, email messages, video messages. It was an amazing expression of God's love in action, which we talk about here a lot. So I want you to make no mistake about the healing power of God's love in action. And I just brought this for you all to see and participate in and feel. Because I sometimes think if we just did things like this for people every single day, showering them with love, it doesn't have to even be a card, but just letting people know that they are loved. It is a powerful thing, and collectively, we are powerful agents of God's love. I felt so seen, so loved, so worthy, and that, my friends, is the gospel. That is the good news. That's the power of love, and it's the kind of community that Jesus calls us to because it is transformative and life-changing. Being seen brings the good news of hope to people who are hurting. And when we do that well, then as we heard in this morning's reading, awe will come upon everyone because many wonders and signs are being done here. When we are on message, serving and loving the least of these, as Jesus taught us to do, for the hurting, the sick, the poor, the widows, the orphans, when we are united in our efforts to create a place where people can be brave enough to show us their real selves, their real struggles, their real identities, well, that's just what it's all about. That's good news. Now, it's no surprise that community is built in struggle, in the suffering. Consider how devastating tornadoes or floods or wildfires bring communities together. We saw it palpably on 9-11, that collective trauma and suffering was felt throughout the entire country and around the globe in many parts. We're seeing it this morning, sadly, with the attacks on Israel that we've had over the weekend. People sending, yes, thoughts and prayers, 
but collectively feeling the, the trauma and the, the grief of what's happening there. Sometimes, though, we even engineer suffering in order to build community. Think about events like the Tough Mudder, CrossFit gyms, even our eighth grade outdoor ed here at Aspen Middle School. It's designed to create experiences that test our mettle and create team building because we know that's good for us. Communities rally for people going through hard times. So when it comes to living life together, first we have to see people and then we have to be with people. And I want to tell you about how one young woman created a kind of ministry of presence that turned into a movement to be with people who were grieving. Lennon Flowers was in high school when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. Four years later, her mother died when Lennon was just a senior in college. And Lennon moved around a lot after that, trying to kind of find herself, holding on to the memories of her youth, even while she was trying to create a new life without her mom. But she realized that she had no one to talk to about that life. She had no one to talk to about the life that she once had. And she says talking about her mom was often just a conversation stopper. People didn't know how to react. So one day, she and a friend decided to host a dinner party in her backyard. And they invited people who had similar shared experiences of grief and loss. Other people who, like Lennon, might have someone that they just wanted to talk about, someone that they had lost. And so it was around that table in the backyard that Lennon and her friends were able to connect in a deep and healing way. It was so meaningful, in fact, that it's grown into a nationwide movement called The Dinner Party. And it's for 20, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s to just come together. Their main purpose is to share a meal and talk about life and loss and, believe it or not, laughter, because we all know that community is built in suffering and also in great joy. So we have to see people. We have to be with people. And the third thing that we have to do is going to come as no surprise to you. In order to build community, we have to love people. We have to love them well. We talk about loving people here all the time at the chapel. Love God, love people. It's our motto. But it was Jesus' motto first. You all probably know the story that when Jesus was asked by someone, what was the greatest command of all? Jesus said, out of all the laws in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, out of all the prophets, the greatest commandment is love God and love others as you love yourself. Another time on the night before he died, actually, Jesus shared a meal with his friends. And he, over that meal, said to them, the best thing you can do is love each other. Almost all of our New Testament letters, the earliest writings that we have about Christianity, were written to individuals and to churches, all emphasizing the importance of love. Any community that professes to follow Jesus has to take that seriously. They have to take love seriously. It is the greatest command. And we're talking about a 
spiritual love here. Agape love. Agape is the Hebrew word, or the, excuse me, the Greek word that was used in the New Testament to describe a kind of love that represents the highest form of love. Agape love is the love that God has for us. It's wide open. It's far-reaching. It is abundant beyond our wildest dreams. Love upon love upon love. It's the kind of love that transcends anything in our human experience of love. It's the way that God loves humans, and it's also the way humans love God because it's kind of this indescribable, energetic way of being. I kind of like to think of it as like gossamer threads that are so delicate and thin, they're almost invisible, but they're strong enough to hold even during the fiercest storms. That's this web of love, actually, the web of agape love. And not only is this the love we share with God, but it's the love we show others on behalf of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you know was a great theologian and was killed during World War II in a Nazi concentration camp, he wrote a beautiful classic little book on fostering authentic Christian community. And he reminds us in that book that human love is for our sake. We choose who we want to love because we're aligned with that person. We think they offer us something that we're looking for. Shared values, maybe, adventurous life, adorable little beautiful babies, something. Bonhoeffer says human love is directed at someone for our sake, but spiritual love is directed at them for Christ's sake. That spiritual love comes from God and serves God. In everything that it says and does, agape love points to the one who brought us all together in the first place. And think about that for a minute. Did you think it was your idea that you walked through these doors the very first time? Was it an accident that you decided one night to come sit in the pews and pray? Was it your brain that said, you know, go sit at the creek at Snowmass Chapel for a few minutes of peace and quiet. Just listen to the birds. Was it your decision all by yourself to just pull up a seat next to this beautiful group of humans? Mm-mm. That's God's doing. That's God bringing us together. What did you think Jesus was doing when he called together the 12 disciples? He's building community. One by one, the 12 disciples left their homes, dropped their nets, left everything they had behind to follow him and to follow Jesus in what what would become for us a model little community 2,000 years later in little old Snowmass Village, Colorado. And by the way, once Jesus' community was formed, that's also when all this trouble began. People started bickering with each other. They started arguing over who was the greatest, who was going to get to sit next to Jesus, for goodness sakes, comparing themselves. Doing life together is inherently messy. It isn't always easy. We all know that. But we also know 
what Jesus knew, which is that it was critical to our well-being. Jesus embraced the messiness of community. And then what's the first thing he did once he assembled the 12 together? He sent them out. He brought them together to send them out, out into the world to love and to serve. So we have to see, with, see people, we have to be with people, and we have to love people. That is what it means to be in community. When we live life together in this way, we send a message to the world that God is present and transforming lives here that there is hope for people who are hurting, that there is healing for people who feel broken. And isn't that the whole deal? We are in relationship with the God of impossibility. That's the whole Easter message. God is constantly resurrecting us into new life, whatever it is we're going through. And it's done through each and every one of us when we come together as agents of that amazing, powerful, fierce form of love. So thank you to Snowmass Chapel for being the kind of community that Jesus' followers are, people who strive to be in community and go all in, living life together. My prayer is that whether people walk through the doors of this chapel and sit with us ever, or whether it's just people that we meet out in the world, we carry that with us. They know that we are a community that sees them and that we will be with them and that we love them because that's who we are. Amen. And let's pray.